This week, we're talking about fine art printing with Mark Menernick and Robert Park, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while. Did you miss me? I hope that you missed me. I'm excited about today's episode because this one was a long one in the making. I think it was probably five months ago now that I first planned to record this episode with Mark Metternick and Robert Park from Nevada Art Printers. And we had so many technical difficulties the first time, it just never happened. And then I hit my busy season and we just never really made it happen. But I just got done with this conversation with Mark Metternick and Robert Park. And it was a really good one because there's a lot of good little nuggets in there. So Mark Metternick, we've had on the show before, you know him from his sharpening for print videos and all of his educational videos. He's an excellent photographer. Robert Park, we've never had on the show before. He is the owner of Nevada Art Printers. It's a print lab out of Las Vegas, and he's best known for his Lumachrome prints. Everybody that I've ever talked to that has ordered a Lumachrome just raves about how beautiful those prints are. Both Robert and Mark teach printmaking workshops. They know a thing or two on the subject. So I'm excited about this particular episode because it's something that I really don't know enough about. Before we jump in, I want to let you know that I have a couple spots left in my 2019 Icelandic winter adventure. I think we have like two spots left. That's the only workshop of the entire year that I have any space on. So if you're interested in going to Iceland in the wintertime with Thor and myself, uh, you can find that information over at nickpagephotography.com. Okay, let's jump into the conversation that I had with Robert and Mark about master printmaking. All right, so I'm sitting down with Robert Park from Nevada Art Printers and Mark Metternick. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank you very much, Nick. Yes, thanks for having me here. This this podcast has been, uh, what, like three months in the making? Four months oh, in the at making? Least. Yeah, we, we, were, we tried to do this earlier. I guess it was summertime when we tried to do it. And we had so many technical difficulties, it just didn't happen. And then I got really busy. And so now there's snow on the ground when we're recording it. So yeah, it's awesome, but, you though. know, we've had time to meditate on this on this particular topic, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh sure. And better late than never. Absolutely. This time of year for me, this is all I'm doing because I'm not traveling right now. I'm just doing this. Nice. Well, you know, those Florida winters are pretty brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, getting we're, just, we're around 70 right now. <laughs> we're oh, feeling so sorry for you up here in <laughs> Pacific Northwest winter getting that we got going on right now. All right. So w- when it comes to talking about printmaking, you guys are the first two people that come to mind just because Robert, everybody that has ever ordered a print from that I've talked to that has ever ordered a print from Nevada Art Printers just raves about how awesome Lumicrone prints are. So I'm excited to have you on. And Mark, obviously you talk about it and you teach it. So you guys are the perfect pair to have on. Uh, Robert, maybe talk a little bit about um, Nevada Art Printers. How long you been doing that gig? Uh, we have been doing it since 2010. And that was, it was related to a gallery that uh, uh, we launched with uh, Art Wolf and uh, Robert Rotella, two, 
two partners that we had a gallery in Palazzo and we built the lab here. So I migrated from uh, Utah where I did a, a similar gig, but uh, we just took it to another level when we came here to Las Vegas so we could compete on the strip. Awesome. When I think about Nevada art printers, everybody talks about your Lumachrome prints. So maybe you can kind of explain what exactly a Lumachrome print is. Well, the, the Lumachrome print, it's, it's not just a paper. Uh, the, the paper is unique for us. There's nobody else using it, but it's much more than that. The way we look at it, we have the paper, which is a, it's a multi-layer paper. It has a gelatin coating with a, uh, a metalized mylar film. Don't and give too the, much the away. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Be careful. Be careful. There's people listening. They're trying to write. They're taking notes right now. I, I just heard a bunch of Chinese print labs like do, pull out their notepads. <laughs> yeah, oh, copy, copy, copy. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it, it's a multi-layer paper that because of the construction of the paper, it allows us to get the, the max out of, uh, of a, a pigment ink. It gives the luminance and vibrance that... Uh, like Fujiflex had, uh, but it greatly surpasses Fujiflex in color gamut and print permanence. <clears throat> it also has the proper surface to allow us to face mount to acrylic. So that's the the base, but you know, it's the whole process. It's we make the ICC profiles and we hand edit the profiles to give a, a, a tone curve. So it, it gives the proper uh, luminance because these are reactive reactive meaning you know the amount of light that you put on it, it it's going to react differently it's going to it has that that um, highly reflective mirrored look to it so uh, you need to account for that somewhat in your ICC profile and, and in your printing software so it's it's linear anybody that's ever worked with something like Fujiflex uh, knows that uh, you know it, it looks radically different under different kinds of light and it's hard to control highlights and so forth. Uh, we worked pretty hard on that to get uh, our ICC profile and our tone curve just right. So it, it, it translates to what people are looking for. That's awesome. And so Marky, you pretty much exclusively print on Lumichrome stuff, right? Yeah, it's my religion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to give you a little background, but I've known Robert for a long time. I think he started seeing my thirst for knowledge on a forum and started feeding it a long, long time ago, like probably like 2005 or something. I don't know. We stayed in touch over the years and, uh, you know, he could tell I was like a total nerd wanting to learn everything about everything. So he'd send me these little messages like, you might want to read this book. You might want to read this. And they'd be these huge thick books, you know. Anyway, I was going down to the Southwest um, some years back about when his print lab and, and Lumachrome was, you know, brand new. And he sent me a little message and he said, uh, there's something better than Fujiflex. I, I think I might have emailed him BS, you know, and that's all I said or something. And he said, well, if you're, when you're done with your Southwest workshops, if you could come by Vegas, why don't you just drop by? And I was like, okay. So I did. And, uh, you know, all he did was I came in talked to him for a while. And then, you know, he does this to a lot of people, but he had me come out and he showed me samples all over the place on walls, on tables and everything, but he didn't tell me anything about what I was looking at. He just, I'd look and I'd say, was that Fujiflex or is that Lumachrome? Or, and he, and he just would sit there and look at me and not say a thing. But as I was looking, I was like, what the heck is that right there? Um, I, I had made tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars worth of Fujiflex prints uh, mounted to acrylic for gallery photographers under uh, confidentiality agreements when I, I lived in Vegas and such. And um, so I, Absolutely. That's the only thing I would print on at that time. But when I saw 
this other paper, I was like, I, I did not believe it. I just like, how can something beat Fujiflex? It's three dimensional. It's just like, mm, so rich, you know, it looks like you're looking into the photo, but I was looking at something and there was a massively obvious difference between the, especially that three dimensionality was the first thing that struck me. And so I was like, well, what is it? You know? And then that's how I, you know, I got in into using it and telling people about it. And when it came out till today, I still haven't seen anything come close. So it's cool. Yeah, I still have never printed on the stuff, Robert. So we, we have to remedy that in the near future. I actually have yeah. to come down to Vegas in about a month. So maybe maybe we can set something up. You know, when you when you have something that could be incredibly you know, a potentially better, you also have to know how to prep it to get mm -hmm. the most out of it. If you give it an inferior file to a superior paper, you're still going to get kind of an inferior look. So what we're trying to do and what Robert absolutely does when people give him uh, the files is, is learning how to prep these to their most so that you're making use of that better detail more three-dimensionality, contrast ratio and stuff. So I just heard everybody that was listening like perk up when you said inferior file, <laughs> because I know that everybody listening wants to know, well, what what exactly does that mean? What is, what is an inferior file? So Robert, when people are sending you files to be printed, what are some of the guidelines, first of all, that you recommend that people do to their files before they send them over? Well, one of the, as far as, as file submission, uh, I, uh, I ask clients to send their file as a TIFF 16 bit. And if they've done any output sharpening that on a duplicated base layer and sharpen that duplicated base layer so we can, we can dial it out if we need. And also to let us do the upsizing because okay. right now we have four different algorithms that, uh, and methods that we can utilize to upsize something. And they all have different attributes that are better for certain kinds of images okay. and it really depends on, on what the image content is you know the uh the iso that it was shot at which results in a noise profile of the image you know there's some of the processing that they might have done you know their monitor may not be correct at the correct luminance mm -hmm. for their environment so there's there's a lot of things but the basically you know the as a basic start tiff 16-bit sharpening on a duplicated layer no upsizing so the the tiff file is that just for that duplicated sharpening layer is that why you want a tiff file over of you know of super high quality jpeg for the layers there, there's much more to it than that and and it, if anyone's really serious about getting a great image they they should not be sending a jpeg but you know a lot of people you know they just have a jpeg so we work with it but the jpeg doesn't give us as robust of a file if we need to make edits to it or if we mm -hmm. want to uh uh, sharpen it or lighten it. The fidelity is just not quite as good. And if someone's in Lightroom, the gold standard, the absolute gold standard is to export a DNG from Lightroom if you've only used the Lightroom. That's excellent information because I've always heard that, you know, there's not really a difference between JPEG and TIFF, but what you're saying is that there's definitely a difference, especially if you're going to do any edits after the fact. Yeah, if you're going to do anything to it after the fact, there there is uh, a definite improvement. Now, a fully finished file that has everything absolutely perfected for output and the output sharpening for that particular size that you're targeting, the difference between the high quality JPEG and the TIFF isn't as great, but you can't go back and, and edit that 
that JPEG and, and have as much fidelity or as robustness as you can if you have the TIFF, especially the 16-bit TIFF. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you know always comes up when people begin to print their work, especially for the first time, is you know just how much darker prints come out typically than the, you know, the monitor that they're looking at. One of the questions that came in on the Facebook group is assuming that you're operating on a calibrated monitor, are people that are doing prints and coming away with good results looking at that histogram? And is that giving them an idea of where those tones are going to fall on the print? Or is that histogram more for displaying on a screen or on the web? Well, let me ask you this. If you're looking at a, an image, are you do you look at just the histogram and never look at the image itself? <laughs> Good question. I always look at the image, not the histogram, right. typically. So that sort of answers that, but it's that's a pretty complicated, uh, or that gets into a, a, a somewhat complicated situation. There are particular ways to set up an edit for web and particular ways to set up an edit for print. And there's a very specific way to set the luminance of your display. And they're quite different. And a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we go into a lot of that when we when we do the the workshop and and to most people it's it's like a bright light goes on and suddenly things become clearer. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, so we should mention at this point that you guys are leading printmaking workshops. You guys have one coming up this year? Yeah, the Ultimate Fine Art Printmaking Workshop. It's March 30th, 31st of 2019 coming oh, up. Coming we right have, up. I think, yeah. maybe like one or two more openings. Uh, and then we have one on my website that I haven't told Robert about yet, I don't think, um, on <laughs> March 28th to 29th of 2020, which is booking up. Um, but, well, thanks uh, for letting better, me know. Yeah, better mark that on your calendar, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> I think I sent you a, a message. I said, if you have any problems with the dates, let me know. But um, <laughs> I, I will say that we are telling people that this is uh, the best workshop in the industry in terms of it's the most comprehensive and cutting edge uh, fine art printmaking workshop from in-camera capture all the way to a mastered print of any type. And then people can scale back that information um, if they have production needs and they can't spend, you know, half a day on an image or something like that. So, but we're giving them the ultimate and they can pull a few things out of it. Um, even the basic beginners that have taken the class have told me it's been awesome, even though, you know, quite a bit of it went over their head. But we also give them the videos for review so they get all of the teaching afterwards. Cool. But some of it's also NDA, non disclosure agreement, because we are teaching some proprietary stuff that's absolutely you know original to robert pioneering or myself you know that's one of the challenges of you know talking about print labs and printmaking and stuff is that it's a highly competitive market and you can't really talk too much about your product otherwise people will just go out and recreate it you know so that's got to be a challenge as well it's going to be i think as time goes by you know yeah. more and more people are gonna know and they're gonna tell their friends and such yeah so another question that comes in pretty often is the, the talk about 4 and 5K monitors and why sometimes those are not ideal for when you're dialing in the sharpening. Uh, especially I know when I'm, I've got a 2.7K monitor because I didn't want a 4K um, mm -hmm. because... Good. 
if you're sharpening a print or sharpening a file that's going to go on the web, when you resize it and then sharpen it, you're looking at like basically a thumbnail of what what it looks like on your screen. So maybe talk about uh, what monitors you guys prefer when you're editing something for print. Robert's great at describing this. I keep it in real simple terms. It's pixel density. You know, you, if you're, you can't, you can't see 300 pixels per inch on a print. So we have problems with being able to actually evaluate critically the noise profile, how much noise is in the image and how sharp that image is. You can't, you just can't see it. And then the viewing distances that you are kind of seeing it are not ideal and they're not as good as the lower than 4k monitors. And so if you're a serious printmaker, um, you want to keep or acquire, uh, a, a older monitor, which is kind of funny. Yeah, it is you know a bit contradictory to to what you would think uh, would be the best. You would think that more pixels, more DPI, more resolution, it's better, better, better. It's going to be much more like the print, but in in reality, uh, it's not. And where the the real problems come in is when you want to upsize images uh, also, because when you're upsizing anything above the native resolution little tiny tiny things become much larger larger things something that might have been crushed down on the 4k display or 5k display um, and you think is going to be fine for your 16 by 20 suddenly becomes like a giant you know speck of pepper or sand and a bigger print and it isn't good what it really relates to is is the pixel radius or the pixel size the best pixel sizes for judging at 100 percent zoom uh is a 0.22 to a 0.25 pixel radius that roughly equates to on the 0.22 side a 27 inch um, qhd which is the 2560 by 1600 monitor uh, or a 30 inch qhd which it gives you the 0.25 otherwise you just can't really see deep enough into a into a photo you yeah you really can't see what's going on on the pixel level and with the 4k and the 5k displays especially with the apple system uh the apple is doing some some they're they're calling it smart you know like you know to make it a better user experience but they're they're playing with some things and on the the 4k it's at 100 percent. it's so small you really can't see if you're starting to create a little bit of noise or grain or edge and if you zoom in to 200%, that 200% is an interpolated amount because it's it, it it's not really uh, um, an accurate representation uh, of the single pixels. Maybe when they get to an 8K display, you may be able to use the proper amount of pixel doubling to get a better representation out of it. But they they haven't they haven't uh, done that yet. And the other problem is is that uh, most people don't know that if you're on a, a 4K or or a, um, one of the laptops with the Retina display, which is an even smaller pixel, which makes things even worse, is is that uh, people don't know to open Photoshop in high res mode. That they're opening it in a standard mode, so text is visible and 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 it's it's an even greater interpolated representation of what's going on. 
So if, if I'm hearing you right, it's kind of like uh, if you're viewing an image in Photoshop at like, you know, 66% or whatever, you can tell that you're seeing that interpolated kind of guess of what the image looks like because you start getting, you know, banding and, and smooth gradients and stuff like that. But when you zoom into 100%, all of that banding and all of those weird artifacts go away because you're no longer looking at an interpolation. You're actually looking at how it actually looks. So I'm guessing that that goes the other way. Once you zoom past 100%, you start going into 200%. Um, it's starting to guess again. Is that kind yeah, of what you're some, saying? Yeah, there's some smoothing going on, you know, in order to spread the pixel, you know, out across four pixels or uh, or two pixels, you know, depending on, you know, how far you've right. zoomed in. Since the pixels are so small uh, and to the naked eye on like a retina, uh, you can be sharpening and sharpening and sharpening, and you're really not seeing anything. At, yeah. Like a lot of people yeah. will sharpen at 50%. Uh, for print, you're not really seeing anything. And it, it's just because it's so small and it's, you know, it's, it's blurred by your, by your eyes and the size of the pixels and the acuity that you can get. So you wind up over sharpening your images, uh, usually mm -hmm. massively. Where the real problem comes in is, is that if you've over sharpened in the raw stage, you've locked that in and you've basically handicapped your file for life. And that's one of the things that I noticed, even when I went from like, you know, a standard HD monitor to my 2.7K is that suddenly, you know, the same sharpening techniques that I was doing before <laughs> don't seem like they do nearly as much anymore, you know, and then I go to my laptop and then it's like, you know, to totally different still. I definitely see a need for there to be some kind of, uh, you know, standard, like, you know, this is the monitor that I check all of my print work on because this is what, yeah. this is what I can know and what I trust. Yeah. Now there's an interesting thing is that the, uh, the companies that are making the displays like, you know, ISO and NEC, they still offer those displays with 0.25 or 0.22 pixel radius. And one of the displays that we recommend is actually called the photographer's monitor. And it's that QHD. It's not a 4K. It's the, it's the uh, 2560 um, resolution. And they call it the photographer's monitor. Do you recommend like wide gamut displays or do you recommend just... Um, uh, brain fart like an srgb <laughs> or, or yeah or do you just recommend SRGB. srgb monitors well the the thing interesting thing is is that the displays that are fall the panels i should say the, yeah. the panels that are falling into the category that we're recommending here are all wide gamut you know panels so if you're going to go out and get one of the better panels to do this they're going to be wide gamut and then and also we're, you know we're talking about print so when you were saying um you know i should have like one display that's going to be the most accurate but it's almost like you got to kind of like well, okay what are most of the web people you know people looking at your website and stuff or yep. instagram what, what are they going to be seeing but then when you go to a print you know how can you see the absolute best possible closeness to what a print will look like and that would be like a separate um, uh, workflow or, or separate uh, thing for a person to be thinking about. I have an sRGB uh, Mac Thunderbolt 27 inch that I have grown to really like because I know that my images are going to be viewed through a lot of Macs. Most of my workshop clients and such, you know, maybe you know, 60, 70% of them, maybe even higher, have a Mac. So I do want to see what my image looks like through a Mac or a MacBook or iPad or iPhone or whatever. Um, but 
one of the questions that a lot of people ask during our workshop is, can I actually process an image on an sRGB monitor and make a wide gamut print? I do. And what I do is I work on a, a specially calibrated uh, sRGB you know, Thunderbolt. This is one of the lower than 4K monitors. That's why I've kept it. And I just like the way that it views detail. It's not my main main monitor. I have a wide gamut uh, print monitor right next to me as well, but I just like this one. So I use it, but here's a couple things I do. If I'm working in a wide color space like Beta RGB or Adobe RGB or Profoto RGB or whatever, I make sure that I'm not clipping uh, either tones, but also I turn on the gamut warning so that I'm not clipping colors uh, and I don't smart. push, I don't push the saturation all the way when I'm on that. And if it's a real critical print for a client, somebody's hired me and they want a 60 inch perfect masterpiece or whatever, and I'm, and I'm constantly doing these, I'll work up to a point on this monitor. And then I go over to my below 4k, I have a Dell ultra sharp and that's the wide gamut and it will do, it'll look different. Uh, the contrast ratio will look different. You know, how dark black is, how white white is. Um, the colors will be more saturated and maybe a little bit different. Uh, calibrated to the exact same print specs. And then I kind of do that last 10% of fine tuning it to perfection. And then, you know, I send it in. So a person can use a sRGB monitor. But one of the things that people don't think about is gamut um, has a lot to do also not only uh, a lot more color variation, but also um, uh, how saturated things mm -hmm. can be. So you could be like pushing, pushing, pushing. You can't quite get that saturation level. Uh, it's just because the monitor won't show it to you, but it's in the file. Yeah. So there's a simple little thing a lot of people don't know about in Photoshop, and it's gamut warning. And you can choose, hey, you know, Adobe RGB or the Lumachrome ICC profile, or you can choose, you know, Profoto RGB or whatever, uh, sRGB, and you can click on it. And when you do that, it will show you when colors in your photo start going outside that space. You've, you've exceeded the saturation or you've exceeded the gamut in those areas. So you can work very carefully and uh, not clip those colors in those areas. And that's really smart to do, especially if you're on sRGB monitor. But if you want to do everything yourself, it is you know, extremely important to get that uh, print-oriented monitor. And one of the big pluses to that is these are older monitors usually. And you can get them for, you know, under a grand, maybe $400, $500. And, you know, it's not that expensive. One of the things that you were mentioning, Mark, is how the when you're working in a wider gamut, uh, you notice that it doesn't just affect the amount of color, but it also has has a perceived saturation difference. And that's one of the things I really noticed when I switched over to this BenQ wide gamut monitor that yeah. I have now is that everything just looks so much more saturated. It's kind of interesting to work on because you end up not pushing saturation quite as hard as you do on an sRGB monitor, it seems like. Yeah, when you post your work on a forum and they say, oh, that's so oversaturated, and you're like, no, it isn't. You know, I'm not pushing saturation. Well, maybe you're on an sRGB monitor and they're they're seeing the full gamut. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's it's funny how these devices, you know, aren't are unless we're all working really hard to try to get them to communicate to each other as accurate as possible. Mm -hmm. It's it's crapshoot.
Well, and one of the weird things is that like when you calibrate your monitor, it doesn't affect every single program equally. Like I noticed that, you know, one web browser will be calibrated to what I calibrated my machine to, but another one won't be. (laughs) And so like you'll have, you know, stuff heavily saturated in Firefox, but everything looks fine in Chrome or or whatever. Um, That's one of the things that I've I've found. Yeah. And there is uh, in the preferences of Firefox, you can go in and set that to uh, recognize or to uh, adhere to uh, embedded ICC profiles or non-embedded ICC profiles. Because what what that is, is if you don't embed the sRGB profile when you prep something for the web, it's it's an un- it's an un- untagged file. And uh-huh. if you have a narrow gamut, an sRGB gamut monitor, well, it's only going to display colors as wide as sRGB. And if you have the wide gamut one and it's an untagged file, uh, it, it will, you know, it'll display the most saturated colors at the maximum saturation of that display, which is mm-hmm. usually not correct. But you can, ah, you can tell it to, to uh, assign files that don't have an ICC profile tag to it to, to just this, just to use sRGB for those. Uh, and that's in the preferences of Firefox. And it's something that happens a lot. I think that alone is is worth the cost of this this podcast right here because that's going to change my life because I'm so <laughs> tired of looking at oversaturated crap on on some of my browsers. I can't remember which browser is the oversaturated one, but one of them, um, I can't trust anything that I'm looking at because yeah. it's just wrong. I used to use Firefox and then now I use Chrome, but um, I it's the, uh, what is it, something Explorer? I haven't used it for so long. Um, that one, unless they've changed things, uh, from my understanding, from what people told me was it wasn't recognizing the embedded profile right. in the JPEGs. And so it was sort of interpreting them however it thought was correct. Um, uh, so I quit using that one. So another question that often comes up when people are talking about uh, printmaking is how big can I print this? It varies from sensor to sensor and file to file. Do you guys have any kind of rule of thumb as to how large a file can be printed given how many megapixels the file is? Well, that's all changing very quickly on us, right, Robert? Yeah, that that there's there's some things that are in flux with that. You know, some of these techniques that we're using now that that can that can have a profound effect on how big that is. But in, in general, uh, if you haven't shot something at, at a high ISO, you can we can generally go bigger than what you might have thought. And mm-hmm. if something's really clean, like at base ISO or at pulled ISO, like uh, the low one or low two, like ISO 32 on the Nikons. And that he uh, means ISO expansion. That's my language. Yes. Yeah. ISO expansion. That's my religion. Uh, <laughs> you, you can get, we can get a 60 by 90 out of a well-exposed, sharp uh, D850 image. Nice. Yep. And that yep. just has to do with like, you know, the algorithms that you're using for resizing. Uh, yeah, the different, the, the different, uh, which, which algorithms, which sharpening routines we use, as long as it's not been over sharpened in the capture. Okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah. They, it, there's, there's a lot that goes into that in terms of, uh, maximizing not only the sharpness, but the quality of the detail in an enlargement. If a person wants to put a lot of effort into it, um, 
Um, but it does. Yeah. It has to do, he said, he said sharpening routines or whatever, but there's, you know, capture sharpening, there's sharpening for output, there's interpolation or upsizing choices. There's grain simulation. There's a whole lot to that. So Robert, if, if somebody's going to send you a file, do you recommend that they be fairly conservative with the amount of sharpening that they're applying? Because I'm assuming that when you use your algorithms and you resize it, you know, you upsize it, that you're going to end up adding a little bit of sharpness again after you resize. Is that safe to assume? Yes. Less is more uh, with regards to the sharpening that, that you've done, especially uh, especially with the the number of people that are using retina displays and 4k monitors mm-hmm. and the the algorithms almost all and some of them are really horrendous uh, as to how much how soft the enlargement is after you've upsized it yes um, but you know there's some sometimes we want to use that you know there's situations where we want the softer algorithm so it's you know there's there's a lot of craftsmanship that goes into uh, determining you know or bringing together all those different things yeah. but less is definitely more and the smallest radius with a uh, conservative amount of sharpening with uh, the Adobe products is definitely better okay I would definitely agree that but even the stuff that you see online, people tend to over sharpen like everything. But if you look at Mark's photography, you push sharpening like to the limits, but you're all also very thoughtful about how you're sharpening. You're not just, you know, applying sharpening globally to like every single pixel equally. I imagine that you have a, a bunch of tricks that you're doing for your sharpening techniques. I separate web from print. When I do print, you know, people hire me. Well, you know, I make my own prints here and there, but mostly I'm hired to make, you know, masterful images to the highest quality that I can for them. And so they send them to me and that's a whole different uh, sharpening protocol and approach. It's, it doesn't even resemble uh, for web. Um, so and like, can you for- talk about some of the fundamental ways that, uh, that sharpening for web is different than sharpening for print? Like just, you know, view from a thousand feet, like what are some of the big differences? If you just want a really nice looking web image that will suffice, I mean, you actually could just get away with using something like Photoshop Smart Sharpen, you know, just sharpen it with a, like he said, a low radius, high amount, and maybe use the the lens blur, which is the more of a, almost like a deconvolution, real fine sharpening. And you could use that noise slider and kind of slide it out till it's, you don't see it so much in your sky and whatever, and you could call it a day. And most people are just in a hurry. They don't want to sit there and a few of us, you know, photographers like you, Nick, or whatever, professionals or people who are, you know, really trying to push the limits or um, we may sharpen in a bunch of layers and brush in a little bit here and there to, you know, emphasize certain areas and erase it out of the smooth surfaces, stuff like that. But web sharpening is very simple. I mean, you can get away with just doing like something real simple. So it depends for me. If I'm really in that mood where this image I just want as best as possible for web representation, um, I definitely sharpen in multi layers. I'd use the size down technique that Mark Adamus pioneered that where it's, it's a finer sharpening than any algorithm can do, but it's built into a lot of uh, different third party softwares now and people don't know it. And then I just brush in and brush out where I want it to mask in, mask out. But when it comes to print, that is a whole other beast. I mean, you have to be. I mean, again, I got to kind of like, if you're just going to send something in, make a metal print, you just want to sharpen it and you don't have a lab like Robert's, which I don't even know a lab 
where, hey, we'll do the sharpening for you. We'll double check and, 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 you know, set it in layers and we'll fix it or whatever. That's for the most part, people don't have labs like that. So they have to send it in. I have to differentiate if you want a good print or, you know, a pretty excellent print, or if you want a incredible print that just blows people's minds. Those are different workflows, but they really come down to the basics of capture sharpening or pre-sharpening your image. And we, like Robert said, we don't advise doing that raw anymore because if people accidentally overdo it, then they make it a TIFF and then they work in Photoshop, it's locked in. So Mm -hmm. um, doing it in Photoshop as a layer and using the camera raw filter is one way to do it. And you can access the detail tab there and getting that capture sharpening just into the really you know, best detailed areas of the image, underdoing, making sure you're at 100% viewing distance and on the right monitor, and then using the best interpolation methods to size up. Uh, and that's a whole controversial subject, and there's some new awesome things that are going on there. Um, and then you have output sharpening. That's just your sort of general sharpening of your print because it's usually softened substantially once you've sized it up. You know, high pass, if I had to just like pick one thing, high pass is a really good way to sharpen because it kind of drops off your lower frequencies. That's your smoother surfaces. And it, it really attacks the micro detail and the, and the other kinds of frequencies a little bit better. Um, and then maybe a grain simulation, which just creates a little bit more of an enhancement of the quality of the detail. That would be kind of a simplistic explanation of kind of the approach for print. But the main deal with for print is really learning how to mask and get the right things at the right amount uh, and the right type into the right places and and really knowing that you're seeing the right thing on your monitor and then bringing it up to the size that you want to do and then finding that uh, type of sharpening that's going to bring out the very best quality of the detail in the areas you want it, but not in the other areas. So you, know, you, can, you can have depth of field issues where something's sharp, something's blurry. You can have smooth water and clouds, but then you have, you know, sandstone that needs to be really tight and fine detail. So it's learning how to sort of like evaluate and get it where you want it. And on top of all that, there's a lot of new, super crazy, cool, uh, innovative pioneering and even proprietary techniques coming out now that's really allowing us to make, you know, eight foot prints, nine foot prints, six foot prints out of things that we never, ever thought we could at a quality level that we'd never thought was possible. Yeah. And and you're talking about some of the resizing techniques that you guys are using for uh, different algorithms to blow stuff up. It's the whole thing. It's, it's uh, like he was talking about the pulled ISO or low ISO. If you have a clean file, you know, you've exposed it far to the right, you've brought it down. And before you even uh, turned on the color noise reduction in raw. There really wasn't any, you know, well, what you're going to have is a image that doesn't have a, like a graininess to it. It's, I call it an incongruity of pixels. And when you don't have that graininess, that hand, uh, that image can handle quite a bit yeah. more pre-sharpening without any artifacting. So now it's almost like you shot it with a super lens. And, you know, before you sized it up and that's, you know, again, less is more, but then when you size it up, it also can handle a lot more, uh, stuff, more sharpening. I mean, far more than if you have an image that's got a lot of noise, you know, even if it's been taken out and raw, but that noise profile, we call it, you know, how much noise that image originally had 
uh, plays massively into uh, an image's overall potential uh, for enlargement. You know, when you have a noisy image, when you go to sharpen, it's going to find all of that noise and sharpen the noise sharpen because that, noise. that is the detail. Um, but if you have a, a shot that is incredibly clean noise-wise, when you go to add that sharpening, it's actually sharpening details rather than just noise. And that's why printmakers like yourselves, you're lovers of low ISO because that's a little bit further that you can push the sharpness. And the further you push the sharpness, the you know more detailed and, and beautiful that print becomes. Yeah, and there's less noise too yeah you, you know if, if you shoot it at the, the pulled iso the expanded low iso you don't have to use any noise reduction so you, yeah. you're getting more sharpness that way you don't have to use color or luminance noise reduction uh all of your edits are going to have less of an impact on the image it's going to raise less grain and artifacting uh it's it's basically it's it's like the holy grail but uh, everybody's been ignoring it. It's because when you're posting stuff to the web, nobody can tell whether it was shot at ISO 100 or ISO 3200 <laughs> because yeah. they're seeing a tiny uh-huh. little photo. Um, yeah, when exactly. you when you're looking at a giant print of something, stuff like that begins to matter again, and people just aren't printing as much as they used to, and for that reason. You know, people are getting a little bit lazier when it comes to noise and stuff, because sadly for the majority of people, it doesn't really matter that much. You know, Instagram has made us lazy. Yeah. <laughs> and the the metal print also just it totally lacks the capability to have, you know, that ultimate level of, of detail uh, holding and sharpness. So, you know, some noise and grain uh, it will just be blurred out by the metal print versus yeah. any other you know, other print types, first generation print types versus, you know, a second or third generation metal print. Gotcha. Okay. So that that is an interesting subject right there. So you're saying that metal prints, generally speaking, just don't have the detail capabilities that other prints do. Robert, what is your, and I'm, I think I know the answer to this already, but what is your preferred print medium? Did you have to ask? <laughs> 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 I've never but, asked him that question. <laughs> yeah, it's it's obviously well for the for the 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 high gloss landscape images. It's uh, it's without a doubt the the Lumichrome. Uh, you know, I do have some other medias that uh, that I really like. And, you know, and they're very somewhat image specific. Uh, you know, for for paper prints, I I really like the gold fiber silk, and I like the the Honda Mule Photorag Verita. Uh, and gold you know, fiber that. silk that sounds so expensive <laughs> that's just yeah, doesn't it <laughs> yeah that's gonna it's, hanging on the wall of some czar somewhere like <laughs> certainly yes yes and i'll have a scotch with that yeah yeah exactly yeah so um the, you know and they have they have a very specific way of looking uh especially for black and whites uh the, there's a richness that they have and yeah. they you know that traditional like if you've ever seen an actual Ansel Adams, you know, a darkroom black and white print with those deep blacks and the richness of tonality and so forth. And, the, you know, those are all on fiber based papers. None of these RC papers, you know, the, those papers give that look, especially the gold fiber silk, because it has the, the white point that's you know similar to those. Um, I, want, I just want to say, though, it surprised the heck out of me how beautiful black and whites are on lumachrome because i previously would not make a black and white on a fuji flex but those black and whites have such a, a rich rich sharpness it's it's amazing to me and if you put the non-glare you know acrylic on there that 
crazy new stuff. It's uh, to me, it's just, it's an amazing uh, presentation of a black and white. And I would never say that before up until Lumachrome. So yeah, it's a very rich black. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, I, they, the, the P99 looks fantastic with that. Um, and that's, that's, um, that's a, it's a similar surface to what like a 4K HDTV has for the acrylic, the non-glare. And it's, it's a very beautiful look. It's a sensuous look. Um, sensuous. Sensuous. <laughs> yeah. I, well, yeah. we're photographers. This is all sensuous. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more, Robert. Jeez. This is guy talk. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's end this with... Um, Robert, as many prints or as many files as you get sent for your print lab, uh, what are like the top mistakes that you see people make over and over and over when they send you files? I would say that the top mistake is a an improperly set up display. Yeah. Meaning the they've just chosen whatever the recommended luminance was. They've calibrated their display. Um, and it was at the recommended whatever you know 120, and and it's just not right for for their you know environment because the the brightness of your display needs to be matching to the brightness of your work environment. And, you know, if you were in a pitch black room and you your monitor would seem extremely bright, so you're going to edit your images darker. Yeah. Um, and that's that happens a lot. Um, and also, you know, the the way you set up your your Photoshop you know, work environment, you know, the, um, wait, you know, are you saying that black backgrounds are not the way to go in Photoshop? <laughs> I'm kidding. Print, no way. <laughs> not for print. Not for print. Looks great on 500 PX though. Yes. <laughs> you know, on, on web, there's a, as we said, there's different workflows for web and there's different workflows for print. Yeah. Um, so that'd be the number one thing. And then the, the number two thing is, uh, is over, sharpening just a too aggressive or too large of a radius using the defaults and just say, well, that was the default, you know, and, um, those, you gotta remember those defaults were formulated back when camera raw came out and they had a three megapixel Canon, you know, EOS, you know, 30 D with, you know, you know, very, very heavy, uh, anti-aliasing filters over it that blurred the crap out of it. And, you know, now we've got extremely small pixels with no anti-aliasing filters and, you know, your, 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 the radius you want to use because the radius is trying to remove the blur um, and the radius that you're going to use and the, the you know, the exact settings are, are very, very different. Yeah. I have a super simple take home tip for a lot of people that is awesome. If you're not going to make your own more intelligent custom preset in Lightroom or camera raw or whatever raw converter you use, and you're going to just use that image that first comes up, still go in there turn off the sharpening and turn on the remove chromatic aberration checkbox. Why those two things are not done already defies my understanding. And that that is one of the things that even if you're not going to make a couple more intelligent tweaks to make your image a little bit better right off the bat, turn that off. And that's one of the, I think is also one of the biggest things is I get these images from people and they say, Hey, what do you think? Can I make a 50 inch, 80 inch, 60 inch, you know, 40 inch print out of this? I know that I see this this artifacting in there, and I know exactly what it is. About maybe seventy five percent of the time, it's just that they didn't even know that that thing was on, or they yeah. thought that was just for like general sharpening purposes. They didn't, you know, they didn't know how to mask it in or out. So just turn that thing off. Yep, one of the most uh, 
you know, useful things to learn is just how to mask out some sharpening, you know, and, and mm-hmm. to decrease that radius a little bit. Uh, because oftentimes it's just set too strong, mask some out so you're not sharpening the noise in the sky. And that alone increases the quality of of every single image, pretty much. That's that's one of the things I first things I do to every single raw file. Let's go in and tweak yeah. that sharpening. Well, guys, yeah. um, where can people find the the information about the workshop you guys are doing? Uh, it's at markmetternick.com, M-E-T-T-E-R-N-I-C-H.com. And right there uh, under workshops, we have an interactive brochure that's really beautiful. And it, you'll get the gist of it. And most people see it. They're like, well, it's, it's Robert standing next to a hundred and something inch New York shot that he made with the D8 hundred or something and you can stick your nose on it or, or or you know magnifying glass and you can read the the license plates in the cars off this thing so uh it's i think it's a tension getter because that we take people to the galleries in vegas and they get to see some of these things you know and what they can look like if people implement the stuff that we're talking about so but anyways that's that's where they sh- probably could go yeah or my youtube channel i i do talk quite a bit about uh, uh the workshop and if somebody wants to order one of these Lumachrome prints, Robert, where can people find that stuff? That's on our website, and that would be uh, NevadaArtPrinters.com. And uh, all of the info is there. And we have, our, we have a basic online you know, order form where you can just put your info in and send a file to us. And we'll look at it for you. And there's no charge for that. You know, so we don't charge you until we've looked at your file and discussed it with you make sure that it's going to get what you want. I really hadn't mentioned, but we are a custom lab. We're, we're not a, uh, a high volume, big box, you know, just crank it out, run and gun. You know, it came, came in, hit print and it goes out. Everything is looked at by somebody. They, m- most of the, the large prints that's uh, come across my desk. And if someone requests you know, custom work, it comes across my desk and I hand touch everyone and prep them. So it's, uh, it's a totally different experience from, you know, the fully automated places that you've, you've gone to, but it's, it's what the true traditional custom labs used to be. Very cool. And I, I know a lot of people that have gone through you and they all speak very, very highly. And so when I come down to Vegas next month, I, I want to come at, at the very least and check out some of these big Lumichromes for myself and see them in person. Sounds cool. like plan we'll have a good time cool all right well thank you guys for coming on and thank you guys for tuning in this week and we'll see you all next time take it easy everybody thank you all right thank you very much nick